All right, if you would, turn to Esther, chapter 9. When I first started Esther, I said it was, it's an, it is an intriguing story with lots of twists and turns and many, many surprising reversals. What looks like it's going to be bad suddenly gets turned around and the, the tables are turned. And, and at times the book can almost seem more like fiction than history, but history it is. History it is, and and what a story it has been, a story about the Jews and the Persians, and particularly a story about God. God who is never mentioned in the entire book once. It is still a story about God. For more than a generation, the Jews have lived under Persian rule because of their ancestors in Israel. They had turned away from God, and in his judgment, God but because of their sin, God exiles them. And Esther, Esther, the book of Esther drops us into a brief moment in this, this Jewish exile. But what a, what a moment it is. What a, what a story it is. Esther and Mordecai, her cousin, her older cousin, who adopted her and has been raising her. They're two Jews living in the capital city of Susa in the Persian Empire. And in this story... Both Mordecai and Esther come to prominence as, as Esther is chosen to be queen and Mordecai is targeted as the hated em- enemy of the third main character, this evil man named Haman. And I am Jewish, and when I was growing up, and, and the story of Esther would be read every year at Purim, um, all the kids in the synagogue would have these little, these little noisemakers. And any time the name Haman was mentioned, you go, it was our way of just saying, we hate Haman. You don't have to do that this morning. So as the king's second in command, Haman hates Mordecai, who refused to bow down to him. Haman has an ego issue. And he expected Mordecai to bow down and Mordecai does not. And so Haman being second in command goes to the king. He deceives the king and he convinces the king, King Ahasuerus, he convinces him to sign an edict that will completely, as it says in Esther, destroy, annihilate, and kill every Jew in the vast Persian empire. But as the story moves on, as we have read, the tables are turned and Haman himself is destroyed. In chapter 8, Esther and Mordecai complete this reversal, this reversal of God's hidden providence by having the king issue another order. Queen Esther is, has much favor with the king. Mordecai is raised up. He becomes second in command. And so he is able to create an edict. And it is an edict that counters the edict of Haman. And now in chapters 9 and 10, we are brought to the end of this intriguing book. November 9th, 1938, was known as Kristallnacht. That was the night glass was shattered in every shop, in every home, in every synagogue owned by the Jews in Germany. It was the night that started the first step to Hitler's final solution, which was to be total annihilation 
of the Jewish people. His hatred of the Jewish people led to the Holocaust. But Hitler was not the first to attempt that evil plan. Chapter 9 finally brings us to the day that Haman, after casting lots um, and going to King Ahasuerus and signing the edict to annihilate, designed to destroy, annihilate, and kill every Jew in all 127 provinces that run from India to Ethiopia, chapter 9 finally brings us to that day when Haman's edict comes to pass. Because even though Haman's edict was evil, any any edict written in the Persian Empire, once signed by the king and once stamped by the king's signet ring, could not be revoked. It had to be carried out. And so you've got these two competing edicts. You've got Haman's edict, which is designed to destroy, annihilate the Jews. Now you've got this new edict. Now that Esther and Mordecai are in power, Mordecai is second in command. He writes an edict that counters it. It writes, and the edict says this, that the Jews may defend themselves. They may defend themselves. And they may destroy, annihilate, and kill all the Persians who want to kill, destroy, and annihilate them. And three events are going to close our story. And we'll begin by reading the first part of chapter 9. And the first event is the fight. It is the fight. Starting in verse 1, chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them. For the fear of them, the Jews, had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents who helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Chapter 9 opens up with this tension-filled build-up describing the day that everyone has been waiting for. But before we even learn what happens during that day, the author, as his writing skill, he, he builds the tension up. There's, there's five different clauses in this opening sentence. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemy of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them. I mean, it's just, hey, this is what's going to happen, and he's just piling it up. He's building the tension to let people know something is about to happen. Five clauses, and the wonder is, who is going to prevail? You've got these competing edicts. You've got these competing nations, so to speak, within the empire of Persia. Who is going to prevail? What the Jews have been waiting for is a holy war because there is an enemy that seeks to destroy them. Now, now this experience is not new. 
Holy war is not new. A holy war against God and his people has been, have been going on ever since Genesis 3. When God put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We, we saw it in Cain versus Abel and Esau versus Jacob and Isaac versus Ishmael. And now Esther and Mordecai versus Haman and his allies. And, and the ultimate holy war, and there is one, is between Satan and God. And it's a holy war that met its climactic expression at Calvary. Where Satan seemed to defeat the people of God, but in reality, Jesus triumphed decisively over evil. And he triumphed permanently. The cross, the cross was Jesus' holy war. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, as we read in Colossians 2. The satanic powers, he, he defeated them and he put them to shame. Does that sound familiar that we read here in, in Esther? And the defeat of the devil and his allies, both supernatural and human, was all achieved at Calvary, where neither Satan nor sinners, but Christ himself, was made to share Haman's cursed fate by hanging on a tree. Haman, Haman died for his sins and was cursed. For curses, everyone who hangs on a tree. And he hung, he was impaled on a 75-foot high spike. He died, paid for his sins. Christ was impaled on a cross to pay for our sins. That, that was the holy war. And Paul, Paul tells us today that we are still locked in a deadly spiritual battle. You, you don't want to lose sight of that. This ancient conflict from Genesis 3 continues on. But now we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and principalities. And that's our Christian life day by day. But unlike Esther and Mordecai, we, we, fight. we fight in the light of Christ's victory in our lives. We, we fight every day this battle against sin and flesh and the devil, and we're, we're in conflict. We live in conflict as Christians with, with worldviews that reject and deny the truth claims of our gospel. That is the holy war that we are in and will be in until either Christ returns or we die. We, we struggle constantly with our own remaining corruption. That is a holy war that we are in. But we don't do so with any doubt because the final outcome is known as it was not quite known here yet. We know that victory has been won. Christ disarmed the enemy. He put them to public shame and he triumphed over them on the cross. In Romans sixteen twenty. Paul encourages us, encourages all believers with these words. Note, note, note this. He said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Not his feet. The God, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
Paul encourages us about Christ's victory and where we stand in that. He speaks of the promise of the Messiah to crush Satan under our feet. And we see this happening here in chapter 9. Now, in, in many ways, chapter 9 is a dark chapter. It is dark. Many people die. Judgment is wrought. A holy war has been waged. And as always, God's enemies are not just defeated. They are literally destroyed. God's people overwhelmingly defeat their enemies in Persia. Overwhelmingly. Look at verse 5. The the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha and Dolphin and Aspatha and Poratha and Adelia and Eridatha and Parmasha and Aresai and Adai and Vyazhatha. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day of those killed in Susa, the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, and this is interesting, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's province? In other words, the king is saying to Esther, okay, 500 were killed in Susa, plus Haman's 10 sons. What's going on throughout the rest of the empire? What's going on with these edicts countering one another? Now, what is your wish, he asks? It shall be granted to you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said... And here, wisely, she humbles herself. If it, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. The edict that Mordecai wrote and the edict that Haman wrote were only one-day edicts. It wasn't like it's a lifetime edict. So the edict of Haman was on the 13th day of Adar. That one day, you could annihilate, you could destroy, you can kill every Jew. And, and Mordecai's edict was on that day... The 13th day of Adar, every Jew can defend himself and he can destroy, annihilate, and kill all his enemies who hate him. And so when, when Ahasuerus, the king, looks at, at Esther and says, you know, what's gone on in the rest of the kingdom and, and is there anything else you want? And she says, yeah, yeah, here's what I want. I want the edict to go one more day in Susa. One more day in Susa. God's people overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly defeat their enemies in Persia. The Jews slaughter their enemies. Now, this might seem cruel and barbaric, but you've got to remember, this is a holy war. It's a holy war to preserve the people of God because somewhere living in this vast kingdom live the descendants of Jesus Christ, the one to come. And if Haman's edict is fully carried out, there are no descendants of Jesus Christ. And the holy war is lost. 
So 11 months after Haman cast the pur, which is a lot, P-U-R, it's a, it's a port and it's a lot. He cast a lot and, and they decided that it was the 13th day of Adar. This day of reckoning has finally arrived and, and it has been a tension-filled wait. I mean, if, you, if you're aware, if you remember when the edict by Haman was first written, there was confusion thrown throughout the city and throughout the kingdom. And people were in fear. And if you're living, it's like on Kristallnacht. And you know that there is more coming. And there's a final solution that Hitler plans. And you don't know when it's coming. And you just wait night by night. That's what's happening here. After the lot has been cast, that day has been, been declared. These people are waiting for Haman's final solution. Thankfully, there is a counter edict. Now, interestingly, the author in the beginning of this chapter doesn't draw out this drama, but he tells us the outcome quickly and, and rather anti, anticlimatically. Look at verse 1. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over them. The, the reverse occurred. It's a, there's a stunning victory. A stunning victory. A grand reversal has taken place. Just as it did with Haman and Mordecai. When Haman came into the king, as we read earlier in chapter 6, Haman came into the king to, to ask for, the, for Mordecai's death, that he can impale him on this spike. And the king said, well, but, but before you say, and before he said anything, the king said, I want to honor a man. And it turns out it's Mordecai. And, and Haman ends up on the spike. And Mordecai ends up being, being elevated to the second in command. It's a grand reversal there. And here is another grand reversal. 500 enemies of, of, the, of the Jews die in Susa. And then we read throughout the empire. Now look at verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hand on the plunder. And on the, the next day in Susa where e, uh, Esther had asked for another day, verse 15, the Jews were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day, not just the 13th, on the 14th of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. The fight is over. The people of God have won. And God is quietly in the background. Never mentioned. Never once we see the name of God in this book. Not for 10 chapters do we see God anywhere. Do we read of prayer anywhere? Oh, but God is here. His presence is subtly throughout the chapter. When, when we read, and the author puts here in verse 1, the reverse occurred. My friends, he's alluding to someone not something. He's alluding to someone. Remember, he's, he's writing this at least 50 years after the fact. So we, we begin to see this idea of God's presence. How did the reverse occur? Really? Where did it come from? Oh, we know where it comes from because we, we look back, we know the history of Scripture and we can see where this has come from. And then three times... The author makes a note that, that Haman's edict was that when you killed the Jews, you could plunder them. Which 
is probably some of the motivation, greed to kill the Jews. But when Mordecai's edict came out, he would say, you may not plunder. Now remember, looking back as, as we read through this story, Haman is from the tribe of the Amalekites. Agag, the king of the Amalekites, who was a horrible enemy of the Jews. And we read about them in Exodus, when they were the first nation to attack the Jews. And later on in 1 Samuel 15, Saul, who is the first king of Israel, is told to attack the Amalekites, to totally destroy them, to destroy them, annihilate them, kill everyone, men, women, and children. It is a holy war. He is to destroy them and take no plunder. And what does Saul do? He takes plunder and he doesn't kill the king. And now we see later on, we have the king's ancestors and here they are in a man named Haman fighting. And so, so what does what does Mordecai do? He writes an edict that in many ways counters the edict that Saul rejected in 1 Samuel 15. And the Jews do not plunder. And you wonder, why, why, why did they kill Haman's ten sons? And they actually impaled them on spikes. They did it so that his sons would not avenge their father's death. Mordecai's decree has won the day. God's, God's ancient promise from Genesis of survival for his people and the destruction of their enemies remains intact. Mordecai's decree, yes, it brought victory, but ultimately it was God's hidden providence that determined the outcome. He, God has assured his people throughout history of their continuance. No matter who their enemy is, God will protect his people. Even among flawed and sinful people, as we see here who are in exile or among us, God's word remains true and he remains faithful to it. This was a holy war. This was the fight. And God proved himself faithful in the people of God. And so now, now we get to verse 20 of, of chapter 9 and, and the feast. That's the second part. So we've got the fight and now we've got the feast. And Mordecai Actually, let's, let's go back up to verse 18. We'll start there. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that day a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the royal towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday and as a day for which they send gifts of food to one another. So Purim was this grand holiday and they would make these, as a kid growing up, they would make these pastries uh, that were three-cornered. They looked like you know, they were triangles. That's because everybody believed that Haman wore a three-corner hat. And so you would eat Haman because you didn't like Haman. And so now, now in verse 20, we get, to, we get to the feast. And Mordecai, verse 20, Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to, there's this obligation of them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, the day after the, the day of, of the Holy War, and also the 15th month, because the 14th was also a holy war in, in Susa, of the same year by year. So they keep this as, as a 
holiday year by year, which the Jews got relief or rest from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness and days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and cast poor, that is the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term poor. The holy war is over. Celebration occurs throughout the kingdom. A day later, the war is over in Susa. Mordecai and Esther call for this formal celebration called Purim. And by naming the festival Purim, that, that's important. Why did they name it Purim? Because they want, the author wanted to focus his attention on something much deeper. And it's this. The, the lot, which is the word, which is poor, that's what poor means. The lot or destiny of God's people has not been left up to chance. You get that? That's where God comes shining through. It is not left up to chance. It's not determined by someone like Haman casting lots before his gods. Purim reminds the people that God, it is God and God alone who determines how things turn out in this world. And that's where we see this wonderful, again, example of God's hidden providence in this book. This book began with a feast, if you remember, and now it ends with a feast. But the two feasts are so different, dramatically different. In chapter 1, the pagan feast of King Ahasuerus is one of indulgence and it's one of self-exaltation. The feast of Purim is one of recognition. Unnamed though he is God, God is the one. God is the one who the the Jews celebrate for their deliverance. But, But no deliverance, listen, no deliverance in Israel's history is permanent. Until. Until we get to the cross of Christ. That's that's when deliverance becomes permanent. This feast does celebrate a deliverance that is a shadow and promise of the eternal feast to come. If you remember in Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, that's the eternal feast. And that's that's what this is. That's what Purim is. It's an example of a shadow of of a great day of deliverance to come. And, and that day will begin eventually a feast that we will experience in eternity when we are having food at the marriage supper of the lamb and it won't be three-cornered little pastries and Haman's name won't be mentioned. We will, we will be rejoicing with the Lord. And that is good news. For the good news of the gospel is to be celebrated, my friends. The Jews celebrated by remembering the pain and the terror that preceded their deliverance. We should never, never forget the pain and terror that our lives were prior to trusting Christ. That's why we make our way here each and every Sunday. We come here to celebrate. We come here to remember We come here to look forward to the great hope of Christ's future coming. God's God's providential 
and hidden work of deliverance brought the people of God in Esther rest. Three times that word rest or relief is used. And, and it, is a, it is a rest from their enemies. Now, now, it's not a permanent rest. But Christ, as we read in Hebrews, has promised us a Sabbath rest. A rest that will never end. And, and now in this life, we can still rest. We can rest in, in the Savior. We can rest in, in the Holy Spirit who lives with us and dwells in us and strengthens us, empowers us, watches over us, leads us, guides us, corrects us, comforts us. God's providential and hidden work of deliverance brought rest to his people as the gospel does for us. Don't lose sight of that. Jesus taking on our sin and becoming our sin and, 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 and receiving the penalty of God's wrath for our sin, placed on him rather than us and dying for our sins in, in our place and rising from the dead and putting, putting sin and death to dead and offering all believers new life. That's the deliverance we've experienced. That's the deliverance that we celebrate when we come here on a Sunday morning. This great salvation has brought us from death to life and it's given us rest. And if you, if you don't live in, in rest, and I'm, I don't know if we all get tired, we all get weary but there is a there's a spiritual rest there's a there's a rest that only God can give and if you are not experiencing that my my challenge is either you're not a Christian or you're you've lost sight of the gospel you've lost sight of what Christ has done on the cross you've lost sight of the Sabbath rest he has promised as you go and read Hebrews read Hebrews 4 you will see the Sabbath rest listen the Jews were not rejoicing at Purim. They were not rejoicing at the death of their enemies. They were rejoicing in their deliverance. That is what we rejoice in when we come here. And again, it's why we're here every Sunday to rejoice our, our great deliverance, to celebrate God's saving work. Brian Gregory in his commentary, it's a longer quote, but he says this, our hearts can be filled with the spirit of Purim only as we live in the reality and conviction that one day Jesus will return and bring us into the realm of his perfect peace and joy and rest. And on that day, we will sit down at a celebratory feast like we have never seen before. It is what John describes as the marriage supper of the Lamb with glory and beauty that surpass that of the great Persian marriage banquet at the beginning of Esther and that of the Merry Purim Festival at the end of Esther. And we will celebrate. We will celebrate because we will be able to look back over the history of our world and the journey of our lives and we will see before our eyes for the first time the full beauty of God's providential work. Together we will look deeply into the shapes and contours and we will see the subtlety of its artistic style and the character of its brushstrokes. We will even find them in some of the most unexpected places, in our moral failures and our compromises, in our sufferings and our victimizations, in our moments of crisis and our defining moments and in every twist and every turn of every seemingly incident insignificant and mundane detail. On that day, after having taken it all in, we will be able to rejoice with joy indescribable. We will celebrate with heart overflowing. On that glorious day, we will see the artwork for what it really is, the masterpiece of the artist himself. 
And we will see that in all the details of our lives, in all the events, and in all the circumstances, he was providentially there. He was always there. He is here now. And that is the feast. And then we have the author's final, final thoughts. And, oh, what, what final thoughts they are. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Rather strange ending by the author. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land. Oh, okay. And on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of, of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people." Seems to be a rather strange note by the author to end this story. King Ahasuerus, now here's another reversal. He now reverses the remission of taxes, which he declared as a gift to the people when he married Esther. So at the end of that celebration, he created a remission of, of tax, taxes. And now, now we see it again. And then he mentions Mordecai's position in power in the kingdom of, of the Jewish people. In essence, Mordecai becomes king of the Jews, a, a good king who seeks the welfare of, people, of his people and speaking peace to them. Now, now, how does this chapter, this last chapter, have any relevance to our story? Well, at, listen, at the end of Esther, even after a stunning victory and a jubilant celebration, the author draws our attention back to the reality of the world that these Jews still live in. Hashras is immoral, and he is volatile, and he is weak, but he is still on the throne. He's still leading. And the author is warning us. He says, look, don't get carried away. The victory that the Jews experience is wonderful, but the final victory is not here yet, he's saying. The true Savior has not yet come. <laughs> a better king is what we need, is what the author is trying to communicate. And he is coming, is what he is saying. That king is our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is who we look to. So he is saying to, listen, don't look to Esther and Mordecai as your Savior. <laughs> don't look to the edicts that they have written as your Savior. No, no, no. There's someone greater coming, and his name is Christ. That is who you are to look to. Not to Mordecai or a government or a relationship or your finances or your talents or whatever you think will save you. No, only Christ can save you. We look to him so we can celebrate him, rejoice in him, and live for him. David Strain, in his commentary, said this. In many ways, the application... The big idea, the answer to the question, what is the book of Esther for, lies right here. According to Esther 9, 20 through 28, this whole story is told to explain the festival of Purim. Esther is about remembering the saving rest of God's grace and rejoicing in it. That is what they were to do at Purim, and that is what Christians do every Lord's Day. 
On the first day of the week when death was undone and the stone rolled away and life and immortality were brought to light in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we gather to remember the Sabbath rest of God and rejoice. Sunday is our festival day. The Christian Sabbath is our day of feasting and gladness, forgiving and celebration. And a part of our task as we seek to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is to rehearse again the victory of Jesus Christ to tell and be told the old, old story of Jesus and his love. It is to remember the redemptive rest of God won at Calvary so that whatever the dark clouds of Monday to Saturday are on this day, the day when the light was spoken in the darkness and the light of the world rose in triumph on this day, the light of the gospel might shine afresh into our darkness and the darkness never overcome it. That on this day, sorrow might be turned to gladness and our mourning into a holiday. That's today. He's speaking of. If you think the Sabbath observance is a killjoy, you've never understood nor kept the Sabbath rightly. It is, my friends, it is a day of rest and gladness, a day of joy and light on which to remember the redemptive rest won by Christ and rejoice. Listen, this is why we sing when we come in here. It's why we praise. It's why we pray. It's why we preach. We are rejoicing. We are remembering. Listen, this, this is the application of the book of Esther. We remember God's saving deliverance through his hidden providence and his faithful presence. We remember and we rejoice. We rejoice at what he's done and we eagerly, oh, may we eagerly anticipate what he will do when he returns. Then our feast will be the final one in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, just two practical lessons I want you to take away from Esther from our, our series in this book. Number one is this. We saw this throughout. God is always present in our lives, even when he seems most absent. God is always present in our lives, even when he seems most absent. And secondly, to understand providence, to understand God's providence his hidden providence, his dark providence, sometimes his frowning providence, rightly, to understand it rightly, we must learn to read it backwards, the way the Hebrew language is read backwards. In other words, providence isn't typically understood until you're a little bit down the road. Let's take those two lessons away that we might, that we might live lives that celebrate the Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Word, thank you for your truth. Thank you that you love to speak to your children and you love to encourage and equip your children. Lord, may those today who struggle with having a Sabbath rest find joy as they remember their salvation, as they remember where they have been brought out of darkness into light. May, may they rehearse the story of their own salvation, Lord, that you might be celebrated for all that you have done. In Christ's name, amen.